I'm proof positive and an example of what can happen if people get the hell out of the way and allow people who understand community to lead it and then add value and resources to make it real. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. In the many conversations about racism, bias, and inequity that have taken place since the murder of George Floyd, one of the biggest barriers that comes up time and again in Minneapolis is the lack of a black middle-class neighborhood. Houston White wants to change that. This serial entrepreneur is trying to build a neighborhood where black culture and black-owned businesses thrive. Houston's Camden Town in North Minneapolis is a place where people of all colors and backgrounds can shop, meet for coffee, get a haircut, even make it their home. But the key? It will be fueled by black entrepreneurs. Like Houston. It's bold, it's daunting, but like everything Houston takes on, there's a blueprint of tangible steps that have to happen, starting with getting investors to buy in. Houston was already working with national partners like JCPenney and Target before 2020, but now everything he touches is amplified. Houston fields calls from the governor of Minnesota, the CEO of Target, bigwigs at U.S. Bank who all want to talk about building wealth and opportunity in the black community. I'm so excited for you to hear more about his plans and what he knows is possible. And it comes from growing up at the intersection of two very different worlds. Um, you know, I would describe my childhood as a, a cultural collision. <laughs> Um, the South is very different than, than, than the North and Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm from. Um, I, the police chief was black. The mayor was black. Um, the folks who were running businesses were black and all of my neighbors who were both affluent and low income were black. So it was, I, I called the South, my African village, you know, <laughs> my family lived close I got to run around and explore, um, and it was just a great space. That's why I always wanted to go back every summer. Mm -hmm. And Minnesota, uh, e equally amazing but different. Um, my best friend when I came here was a little white kid named Sage, <laughs> and <laughs> we lived across the street, and I got to run to his house and hang out with his parents, and that was a very different world. And he got to come to my house and uh, watch BET and do all the things that we were doing, so... It was just very interesting to actually be in a place like Mississippi where I had no white friends where I lived, but then to be in Minnesota and then best friend be a white kid named Sage. And, and you know, uh, everything from growing up at Hospitality House, playing basketball on the block and just being in a very urban environment, very different. I mean, Minnesota's not the biggest city, but it was a really big city for a kid from Mississippi. Did, did one of your parents have connections here or what, what brought you to Minnesota? Yeah, so my, my mom and father got divorced um, in about 1983, 84. And my aunt, who's the matriarch of the family, had roots here since 69. 
And she told my mother it's a great place to come and get a fresh start. And uh, schools were good, and we should bring the kids here. Got it. And and where did you go to school? Started off at uh, Ascension. I will admit I got kicked out of uh, Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I went to Lincoln Elementary and then over to Northeast and then eventually North High. So the the fact that you had this other perspective, this broader world perspective that I'm guessing a lot of the kids, white or black, that you were in school with, what do you think that, that did? How did that affect the way you looked at the world or thought about what you wanted to do? Yeah, you know, so, so as a black kid, I didn't have an inferiority complex, first and foremost. Um, I think that was really important. And so early on when I engaged with people, uh, yeah, I understood the concept of race um, and fairness, but I didn't necessarily leave with that. It was never really a big deal to me. It was more so I either liked folks or I didn't. Um, and I also realized that I didn't want to be in a corporate world. You know, I grew up seeing folks work with their hands and be entrepreneurs and um, even some of my friends who were, were doing some unsavory things. I mean, I learned a lot from that, those worlds. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just always wanted to find a way to be independent and creative. Uh, and then also just meeting people. And if we vibed, we vibed. If we didn't, we didn't. Mm -hmm. So how <laughs> did you get into housing and development and real estate? Yeah, it's interesting because it started in the South. Those summers in Mississippi, my dad and his brother um, were drywall contractors. And so from a very young age, I grew up going to those job sites. You know, like a lot of the young men who end up working for uh, MnDOT, their summer jobs are out working with their fathers or grandfathers or whoever. And then they just kind of grow into those jobs. And so for me, that's what I did. I worked on all kind of housing sites, everything from commercial to residential. And I remember the first time I saw blueprints, I just was mesmerized because that was where art and construction converged for me. And mm -hmm. I was always a visual artist. And when I was 21 years old, I told my then girlfriend, neither of us had ever had our own apartment. We should buy a house. <laughs> she thought I was... <laughs> <laughs> And so that's what we did. We bought a house. It was a great house close to the parkway uh, with horrible aesthetics. And so I used all those skills. Uh, and she and I worked day and night to fix it up. And so that was kind of my inroads back into using what I learned as a childhood and started me off on this journey to build my construction business. And so that told you, hey, I could do this for other people, too. So you, did you oh, start yeah. flipping houses or just remodeling or what, did, what happened? Yeah, it started off early on when we had our open house. Folks came and they said, oh, this is beautiful. Who did the work? Well, I did it. <laughs> like, whoa, could you do my bathroom? And it started like that. Like folks were like, well, you know, I, I do a bathroom. I build a cabinet here. Then I do a couple basements. They were all friends and family. Mm -hmm. And then uh, because I owned part of a barbershop, uh, a lot of folks either would come over or they heard I did this work. And, you know, the referral machine, it just started to just just go. And so I'm like, this is really a thing. And I enjoyed it a lot. And um, in 2004, I started what then was Metropolitan Homes <laughs> that turned into Brownstone Construction mm -hmm. that led to, uh, in 2005, HY Custom Homes, which was this 
really cool company that we built. We were building custom houses all over the state. Like big fancy houses, right? In some cases? Yeah, 500,000 plus. Um, And we had a unique niche in that Target was going to build their headquarters then in Brooklyn Park. And so I thought it'd be really cool to be building the houses for the employees that they wanted to attract to mm. work up there and live up there. And we had a really unique product. Mm-hmm. Uh, we built some cool houses. I had a lot of really good mentors and we were going gangbusters. It was, it was a great business. But then the recession hit. Then the recession hit. I was, I had bought a house in uh, Gold Valley and was building this $2 million teardown. And we were about 80% complete. And then I got a call from our construction lender, like, we can't release any more funds on any projects. Mm. And then Domino's just, yeah. How did that feel? <laughs> I mean, were you, you must have been, were you scared? Were you, how did you feel? Oh, I was scared. I was upset. I was depressed. <laughs> I was, I was 29 years old and I, I figured I had made it, right? Like, mm-hmm. this was my ascension into uh, American business, you know, prowess. And we all met all the contractors together and we had to take a huge haircut to get out from underneath mm-hmm. those projects. And I was left in a place where, you know, the career that I thought would be, um, my great wealth building tool was then just snatched from underneath me. So funny that you mentioned you took a haircut because you had this other <laughs> skill set, which was you also knew how to be a barber. Kind of a just how, how did that happen? Where did you learn that along the way? <laughs> uh, you know, as a kid, I told my mom I never wanted to work for anybody in my life when I was seven years old. Wow. And I haven't. Um, and so about 11 or 12, I got interested in cutting hair because it's creative. It's like sculpting, you mm-hmm. know, and then fading and shading and all that stuff. And so I had some uh, older cousins who were going to barber school or just had clippers. And I got gifted a pair of clippers. I got on my bike, rode around the neighborhood and said free haircuts. <laughs> About four, four of my four guys who I knew from the neighborhood followed me home and I cut their hair in the garage. And then, you know how it goes. You, you practice, you get better. You practice, you get better. And then I just built a huge clientele. So by the time I was 16, I was starting at 6.30 in the morning every Saturday and cutting hair until about 8 o'clock at night. Wow. Yeah. So, so. so you had set that aside while you were building your construction and, and home building business. When, when everything sort of collapsed, was that the place where you went or, or what were your first thoughts? Yeah, you know, I had a couple of thoughts. One is as a black man, I had done what I hoped I never would do, which is get successful and leave my community. Hmm. The reality is I was a home builder and I was becoming a wealthy young black man. And so my gift back was to donate money to my old basketball team. Or the only time I really went to North Minneapolis was to get a haircut or to visit my aunt or, but that was it really. So I spent no time in the inner city. And I, and as I was reflecting on just life and where I was in, in, in my house at 29 thinking like what next i realized that i had no real connection to a village like it was for me growing up in mississippi mm. and i needed to figure out how i could um both grow and evolve as an entrepreneur but always 
maintain a connection to my tribe. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the barbershop was this natural way to do that as, as well as still have my real estate play. And I bought a building that I absolutely loved for years. Just couldn't afford it way back on uh, 44th and Humboldt. Um, they had no, no copper had all been stolen. The AC had been stolen. It was <laughs> great bones, but just again, aesthetically an absolute mess. Yeah. And um, fixing that place up over a couple months really was my therapy. Uh, and then we opened and it became like, what I now consider a Mecca or the hub of black excellence in the state of Minnesota. What year was that, that it first opened? December 31st, uh, 08. Yeah. In so even when, even when times are tough, people are still going to get a haircut. Oh yeah. And, and the, in the community, the, 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 the barbershop is like a town center. Mm -hmm. You go, you go there for everything from just, connecting or unwinding after work or getting a haircut. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the hub. It is, it is probably the most recession proof of all businesses in the black community. Yeah. So you're feeling personally fulfilled. You're making a living doing this. Yeah. When yeah. did you start to think bigger? Oh, I was thinking bigger from day one. You know, you, I, I'm, I'm from the South and so I'm okay uh being in a, in a in a humbling position for a while right knowing that that's never going to that's not that's not what I'm where I'm going to stay but sometimes that's just the reality times times get tough and so from day 1 I I thought and I wanted to make this amazing space that folks wouldn't necessarily consider belongs in North Minneapolis mm -hmm. I mean I wanted to I I tried to make it as beautiful as I could we had a pool table um, I mean, it was it was lux, right? And so the goal was to how can I bring where I am to the inner city and then and then inspire community and an area because I always wanted to to build houses and build brownstones as a part of my reentry into community. It just was all about timing, you know. Mm -hmm. Did you that, move to back to North Minneapolis too in this time? I did. I, yeah, I lived above that building for three or four years. And so I, I, I tried to make good on the promises that I couldn't just be there uh, nine to four and mm -hmm. then escape again. I had to actually um, be in community. Could you convince your friends who were not in North Minneapolis to come there? I mean, what were your observations at that time about, you know, kind of the divide? Yeah, I mean, you know, an unfair perception, right? North Minneapolis is not a monolith. And so um, there are sections that are tougher than others. But we often hosted things like game night or, you know, we hosted Archbishop Hebda one, one year for um, Martin Luther King Day. And he ate sweet potato pie and hmm. the community. And it was really cool. But folks got to see that oh, this is North Minneapolis. And I often ask that question when we would sit out on the patio, where, where do you think, where, where are you right now? And one young lady who, uh, she came, it was just a part of a, uh, a networking, a Twin City Black business networking event. And she was sitting outside with us and she said, you know, my friends told me never go to North Minneapolis because it's really rough. And I looked at her and I said, do you know where you are right now? She's like, where? <laughs> 
I'm, I'm from North Minneapolis. So it is, <laughs> it is a lot of perception and prejudice and bias that is not fully grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. And that was my goal is to try to show that uh, North Minneapolis is a great place. You just, you know, there are sections that are more ripe than others for uh, the type of development that we were hoping for. So talk about that type of development. I mean, the next thing you did was add a clothing store, right? Yeah. The next, so we started out with suits <laughs> and that was pretty fun. But then I realized that um, I'm not a tailor. And also, I don't know if that really fit where I wanted to go mm-hmm. as, as a designer. Uh, and so I stopped doing that and said, like, you know, I used to screen print T-shirts in the basement of my aunt's house years ago. And I got back and it's just like, what kind of really cool graphic tees can I make that really made a statement that supported this idea and this identity that we're trying to create? And so the term black excellence was something that I was tossing around in 2012, just the idea of, of I am black and I am excellent. And that's what I'm going to be every single day. And I hope to inspire. Mm-hmm. And so we made a, a, a really cool mark that had black excellence on the T-shirt. And then just put them out in the store as, you know, a couple hundred at a time. And you had space You had space next to the barbershop to do that. Yeah, yeah. Inside the barbershop, actually, we had a couple racks and then we just kind of merchandised it. It looked pretty cool. Yeah. And, and they so would... folks, would, yeah, folks would come in and buy T-shirts. And then I remember one month, I couldn't believe the amount of shirts that we sold. And I'm like, you know what? We got something here. This is this is something something really special. And so what did just, you do next? I sat down with my sketch pad and started to draw out a whole brand uh, that really spoke to um, community. I thought about eras that influenced me that I love, like Harlem in the 20s and um, the, the late 70s when my dad and his brothers used to look so cool. And I thought about church in the South and like Sunday dinners and community. I thought about my love and affinity for Brooklyn, um, Central Park and trying to figure out like, how could I create this clothing brand that really just spoke um, to the prowess of, of black futures and black present, and then hopefully inspire uh, this black future that could, that could really just catapult, um, and catalyze human potential. And so that was the goal. I just started sketching and drawing and putting together all these ideas and uh, started to build on them. And how did you get things made? I mean, did you have any experience with, with fashion design? Um, none other than making T-shirts and, and that kind of thing. So I started out on a journey. I, I got some mentors. Um, I did a lot of reading. Um, I called tons of factories. <laughs> Um, and I had some local sewers who were sewing some of this stuff. So it was just scrappy, you know, I, I got really scrappy and just the entrepreneur in me finding assets and putting things together and then failing forward and, you know, (laughs) and then eventually it starts to click, you know, you start to find the right relationships and then you start to produce garments that folks are really uh, excited about purchasing and then the, then the, the 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 snowball just the momentum just started to kick in and it grew so it seems like i mean i remember the first time i heard about oh there's this guy houston white he has this store it's this really cool store 
in in North Minneapolis, and he's, he makes his own clothing. And, you know, it, it seemed like it was kind of that, and I would hear a little buzz about it for a while, and then it just exploded. So what, what did you... Did you sort of go along for a while and kind of you were doing well taking care of it, but it was small? I mean, it was basically you were just selling through your store? Yeah, I was selling through my store, mainly through my store pop-ups. Making a living. And and, and making a living and also uh, making some some strides. I mean, we had Floyd Mayweather put on a hat in 2016. That Mm -hmm. was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple other small, like, wins where some celebrities would wear a shirt of mine or something and i'm like okay how'd you get it to them did did you get it in their hands or did they discover you no they just discover you know it's these things are out there and they saw somebody wearing it oh i like that Mm -hmm. that's exactly how floyd ended up putting the hat on there was a, a young guy who from north minneapolis became floyd's personal videographer and he had on one of my hats and floyd said black excellence wow that's i like that and he pointed to it. The kid told me about it. He's like, Floyd loved that hat I was wearing. So I sent him one. Cool. And he sends me back a picture of he and Floyd a couple of weeks later. And, and so I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. So heading into 2020, the crazy year that was 2020, how, how was the business doing? Where, where were you at at that point? Uh, you know, I, I tell a lot of folks, 2020, I said, is my year. And it was. It was really uh, – so I had created uh, the frameworks of a partnership with Target. Um, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Okay. This is pre-pandemic. So this is 2019. I did uh, 250 stores in JCPenney's. They just sold the Black Excellence shirt. Mm-hmm. First time they had ever done anything like that. And how did that happen? Had, did did you pitch it to them? No, they reached out to me. Wow. Someone saw the shirt. The buyer was like, we love this. Would you be willing to partner with us for uh, a Black History capsule? And then we just worked through it um, cool. and got that done. And it was fantastic. They reached back and said, after two two weeks of putting that on the floor pad, it was sold out. Hmm. It went that well. Um, and so Caroline Wanga uh, had been at my shop. And I, she asked a question, and the answer that I gave really resonated with her. And so she reached out personally, and we went to dinner to talk about how could a corporation partner with an entrepreneur to really create some, some serious change in the state of Minnesota. You said that Carolyn Wenga, who, is the, who was at the time the chief diversity officer for Target, yeah. she only asked you one question. What was that one question? What was that one question? The one question she said, Houston, what are, what are your biggest what is your biggest challenge to get um, this work accomplished in the built community? Mm-hmm. And, and what did answer, you say? My answer was gatekeepers. What do you mean by that? They, the system is, I wouldn't not the system. Uh, the way the game is rigged, and um, that smart capable black talent oftentimes end up as figureheads of organizations that have all white boards. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to, to, to move things forward if you can't speak freely enough to, and know that there won't be consequences. Mm-hmm. 
And so I I don't believe necessarily that folks have ill will. It's just the game is rigged. And so um gatekeeping becomes what what occurs even though um that might not be the intended consequence mm-hmm. and, it, and it holds the community back and carolyn i mean obviously her whole mission with target was diversity and inclusion and equity that's the work that she did internally and externally when she came to the store and when she started bringing executives what what do you think that was about? What what journey was Target on at that point? And again, so hard to believe this was all pre-George Floyd, pre-racial reckoning, pre-pandemic. What was going on at Target that made them come to you? They had people like Caroline in executive positions that could really speak um, truth. Mm-hmm. And that 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 they had a CEO who was a kid from Queens, you know? And I think really understood that we have to listen and and really lean in to what our, there's no point in having black executives in certain positions if you're not gonna trust that they understand uh, how to move diversity, especially where it pertains to black in an organization. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to listen to them, then it's pointless. Then it's just pandering. And I believe, you know, that's why I I got so much love for Target, because they were doing this work before. Right. Right. And with me personally. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's real. I know it's true and not just, you know, a reaction. So you were on the precipice of doing a a collaboration with Target. You were working on a, a clothing line. Well, we hadn't even gotten that far. This okay. was more so about community. We, okay. That was on. That was in the. That was in the discussion. That was in the in the deck. We were gonna work through that, but the first mission was to really build an authentic relationship and to to build uh, um, those inroads of communication. Mm. And then we were gonna start designing what all of this could look like in a very vertically integrated way. And about a week later, I was at Target headquarters beginning to plan a strategy of how we could work together. Mm-hmm. And so um, what she had said is what she finds is that a lot of the the team members leave here because of lack of connection to community. And so it was, it was, it was one of those situations where it's like, okay, this is this is this this could be the the beginning of something really special because corporations don't have the same challenges as nonprofits or different organizations that are trying to build community. And so we built out this whole deck around what we could do together, get the merch in, start having events at so when they would um, when new hires would come in, Target would was well put, this was an idea that they would pay for like four or five haircuts to get them in community when they have promotions that we would do it at HWMR. So again, it'd be a wraparound of just continual bringing them into community. Uh, and that we had all designed. Caroline went to Brian Cornell and said that, you know, Brian, we need your buy-in. And uh, Brian actually came to my shop for the kickoff of this work. Wow. February, February 19th, 2020. Amazing. What was that so, like? Oh, it was it was it was surreal, right? You got 
Target had had a great year, and you had the essentially the CEO of the year in the shop, and we had this. It was all men, uh, all black men, a lot from Target, and then I invited a few folks. It was about fifty people in the room, mm-hmm. uh, and Brian shared his personal story. Um, he and I had about a fifteen-minute one-to-one, um, and it was amazing. I mean, they they the week prior had set up a meeting between myself and Issa Rae. Mm. And so they were really coming. So when you say what 2020 was going to be like, I mean, like literally we were walking these steps to create this really symbolic partnership. And then March 8th. Yeah, I see. Then comes COVID-19. Everybody goes home. We all get on the screens like you and I are right now. And, And what happened? Did that work stop? Did it get paused? Did you keep doing it from home? It got paused. I mean, yeah, Target had to handle business, right? right get right. people toilet paper and yeah. tissue and <laughs> all these kinds of sure. things. Sure, keep their employees safe so, and yeah. 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 And so um, it was really special. I think it was around end of July, August of of last year uh brian and kira who is now the chief diversity officer yep. kira fernandez and they got on a zoom with me and brian just said he wanted to check in hmm. and so we just talked and he asked me what was i seeing what did i think what you know how was just how was i doing right we didn't really talk about anything targeted in houston business related it was yeah. just a check-in and from that led to um, with Target had level set, you know, things were good with the employees and the business was was going well. And so we started to reengage about what we could and should do together going forward. OK, so that, of course, that conversation came after George Floyd's murder, after yeah. the, you know, uprising and racial reckoning and all of those conversations that you were really in the middle of and became a person that people called. I called you. Uh, Lots of people called you. Um, What was that like for you as a black man, as a Minnesotan, as a person who's living here, doing business here, your own business impacted by the pandemic? And then you see all of this craziness happening. People, you know, Target being, you know, having being looted and all this stuff happening. It's so much to process. What what were your thoughts at that time? I I, I honestly was perplexed, you know. I, I was um emotionally drained. Um yeah. I, I, there were so many just tension points needs as a business owner to keep property safe. Mm-hmm. But then the realities of being a black man that understands uh, there's a lot of injustices that have occurred and people are hurting. And so how do I take my business self out of it and just be a part of a community that is hurting? Yeah. Um and I, I had every emotion, you know, I, I, I was often a bit of in a daze, you know, I, I think I didn't know how to reconcile it all because 
here I am dealing with this pandemic and what it means to my business being shut down and all of this stuff. And then I'm seeing on the block little to no traffic because I think people were collectively depressed and in their houses. Mm-hmm. Even in the summer. The, mm-hmm. I mean, there were the people just were always out. And I, I just didn't see a whole lot of it. And I just, I didn't know what to make of it. I honestly, I was, I was upset. I was trying to um, be a voice of reason. You know, I, I didn't agree with the language of defund. I understand. Uh, and, and that became a, just a just, just hot button topic. Um, I do agree wholeheartedly and I always agree with a, a transformation of the way we think about policing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just tough, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I felt like, well, who the hell am I, right? Like, I'm getting pulled in all these different directions to answer all these questions and I'm dealing with my own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Um, well, you know, and and interestingly, when I think back, one of the reasons why I called you in the middle of that and you were you were shut down, right? You had to close the the barber shop for a time. How long were you closed? Yeah, we were closed from March through we were allowed to come back end of May, but we ended up staying close to August. Okay. It was actually um, Greg Cunningham from U.S. Bank, another amazing leader, who I was talking to him about, you know, what can we actually do? What are, you know, what do we need? We're having these conversations finally, you know, how do we actually take action? And he started talking about um, investing directly in the community, investing in black entrepreneurs. And he mentioned you. And I was like, well, I know that guy. I can call him. (laughs) And so we had a great conversation then. But I mean, that was so talk a little bit about what, you know, that work and that the whole idea of a big bank like U.S. Bank saying we're going to invest in Houston White and his vision for his business in North Minneapolis. Culture plus capacity. Right. That's this idea that I presented um, to 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 leadership at, at U.S. Bank um, early February again of 2020, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, Greg and I, two black men, went out and had a, a really good conversation um, about ideas that he had, thoughts that he had, and, and what I was doing and how he could help. And I, and I, and I just shared with him, I believe that Black Minnesota has been held back because we have not unleashed human potential. Entrepreneurs are the one missing link, right? We've tried philanthropy. We've tried um, to give, you know, higher paying jobs, all these kinds of things we've tried. But what we haven't done is brought thought leaders, entrepreneurs, pioneers to the table and invested in those people and let them be a catalyst. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a better job at hiring black people than a corporation. We're hiring and retaining them. But if a corporation could get out of its own way and say, well, let's not try to go a mile wide and an inch deep. Let's go and figure out who we can connect with that will create ripple effects throughout the community. And those are generally entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so culture plus capacity is the idea that I presented. And it is just that, right? When you think about the, the example I use is one of the best is J, uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. Mm-hmm. And they created Beats headphones together. Right. 
right? And Dre came to Iveen and said, I'm going to make sneakers. And he said, you're Dr. Dre. You need to make speakers. You don't make sneakers. (laughs) (laughs) Speakers, not sneakers. (laughs) That partnership grew and led to a $2 billion, right? Now, think about that. Dr. Dre, I'm sure, I I would venture to say, has hundreds of people working for around and his impact on community is that much greater, like, and sustainably greater than just a corporation saying, we're going to give five or 20 or $10,000 to make ourselves feel good mm-hmm. to a hundred people that has little to no impact. And then folks are back again with that handout saying, I need more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the idea, really, like, let's let's create a mechanism whereby we can catalyze and then help sustain yeah. uh, community. So you presented a plan. I don't know. Did you talk about it that day to, to Greg? Yeah. You had a vision to expand the Houston white empire in North Minneapolis, in Camden Town. Yeah. I did. I did. I, I, I had it that day. Um, I, I, it's my belief that in black communities, the smallest institutions have the greatest impact. And grandmama's house, your church, the barbershop, <laughs> salon, whatever. Now, as an entrepreneur, someone who understands scale, that was, that's always the goal. But typically, folks want to start with the big thing and then let it trickle down. When you talk about community development, you have to start with things that are going to benefit community and that are small and they lever up. Mm-hmm. Just like Barack Obama became the president, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't become the president from the top down. He got little donations and just grew that yeah. thing. And so that was my idea is like, let's start with things that we can do. And then let's show what that does. And then let's do a little more. And then by the time we get to the really big thing, we have so much trust. And we have the proof that we're actually going to create institutions. And when we do big, big, big projects, the community has less pushback and disbelief because we've levered up. And so that was really the idea. So you did get some money from U.S. Bank and you used the the downtime during the pandemic to begin expanding your space. Yeah, I used the downtown downtime to um, finish up the capital stack, have a whole lot of really hard conversations with people who are doing great work about what's not working. And let's 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 go on a journey together. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, let's try something. I, I cannot guarantee you anything, but let's let's try this. And I had I don't know how many Zoom and Microsoft Teams calls <laughs> <laughs> trying to get enrollment. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, uh, it, it worked. I mean, it took a lot of arm twisting. Um, but we've got our capital stack completed. Um, and what are you doing with that? We're building phase one, and that is the home of the the first Get Down Coffee Cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's probably going to be one of the coolest coffee experiences in the world. Uh, a full-time DJ booth in a coffee shop. It's going to cool. be different. So that, um, along with we're building a new barbershop, that's going to um, have five new barbers and then it's flanked by a sidewalk cafe 
to really bring that like energy to the street in North Minneapolis, folks just being outside, smiling, laughing, listening to music. Um, and then we're in the pre-development phase of a phase two project um, that we're working with United Properties. That's another relationship that we'll, we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, on how do you imagine the future of urban housing that brings uh, executives or uh, potential employees of our Fortune Fives and mid-tech mid companies to communities that they would love to live in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a 12-unit uh, work-live kind of building uh, that's going to just come right alongside the cafe and become just a little model, a little pocket of, of, of how we think you start to catalyze community. So that will have sort of a, a higher entry point than some of the housing around you? Yeah, market rate. You know, I am um, a firm believer that we can't concentrate poverty. Um, we're going to have to have a mix of incomes, a mix of socioeconomic classes and race and all of it that has to be allowed to be black led um, in order to really move community forward. The schools are funded by the tax base. And so we want better schools. We have to create uh, a mix of higher incomes. Are there enough people like you, Houston? I mean, you said yourself, when you had your early success with home building, you know, you had moved to a different part of town. You were sort of living a, a different life. You were compelled to go back. Do you think those, you know, mid-level, you know, younger professionals who right now are maybe living in the North Loop of Minneapolis, are they going to come to to North Minneapolis if you build this housing? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I, I think that if you think about the questions that were asked early on about hip hop, there's no way that this music is really going to become a thing, right? Like that, <laughs> that's the conventional thinking. Yeah. And then, well, guess what, right? It is the most impactful music on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I think that permeates right out of Black culture. There is a, a very specificness to to the culture that is it's it's appealing now you have to mix that with things that people want uh which are amenities and amazing assets in a neighborhood mm -hmm. safety but if on par i don't think there's any competition because it's it's a tribalism it's a it's a certain thing that you can't even quantify mm -hmm. that you need and so most people just leave yeah it, and it, it's the thing that, that comes up in a lot of conversations that I think, you know, so many people in business have been having this past year about, you know, the problems in Minneapolis and the in this market and the inequities. And a lot of it comes back to neighborhood. And where is the black middle class, upper middle class neighborhood in the Twin Cities? It doesn't exist. Governor Walls called me a week ago. And he said, Houston, you, you, you brought this up to me three years ago hmm. about the need to focus and do this work around building community. And if we don't do it, mm -hmm. we're going to continue to lose talent. And now, and his, 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 his words to me were, 
I can't have or I don't want Minnesota to be known as the worst place in America for black people to live. Yeah. The most unsafe place. Right. Whether it's true or not, the perception is reality. Right. Right. And and this is the work without without focusing on community. There is no other solve. Now, there could be some people listening who are thinking, but wait, if we're talking about community and we all want to get along and we need to love each other and understand, why would we want to create, you know, a black suburb or a black neighborhood? Don't shouldn't we all be integrating and living together? Yeah. So coming from a guy whose best friend is German Irish, I'm not the wrong person to push back on this idea of not being inclusive. So I'm 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 of the mindset that human connection is the most powerful force in nature. And our differences is a good thing. Where I hold the line is it has to be black led. And and that is the culture that permeates and the leadership of a community is black. That doesn't mean that everybody who lives in the community is black. And so um, that, that's, that's my focus in my work. Um, And, and it's, it's, it's acceptable to have Chinatown. It's acceptable to have Little Italy. It's acceptable that St. Louis Park is known as an area where the Jewish community has congregated. Yep. Those things are all acceptable. Mm-hmm. Why in the hell would somebody push back when I say I'm going to build this amazing place of black excellence that can be in- enjoyed by all of us? It's mm-hmm. a good point. So what what's next? What what do you need? I mean, you've got your phase one that's underway literally right now as we're recording this in May. Um, you've got a phase two planned. You need other people to get on board. You need other businesses to start opening around you. Is that happening? Yeah, it's happening. I mean, we have a corridor that we have to build out, right? We, the challenge, there are a few challenges. One is there's not a ton of commercial space available right now. And so we're working alongside the 2040 plan to think through how can we create more commercial space on that corridor? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few spaces right now that are, are going to be up for RFP from the city of Minneapolis. And so imagining those spaces. But I'll tell you, one of my focuses, I've quietly recruited 19 young black families up in Camden Town. And so I'm really also focused on making sure people get in community before community becomes unaffordable. Um, I mean, we see what's happening right now with the housing market. Mm -hmm. So just as important as building commercial space and buildings is important to get people to move in community while the the price is as affordable as it is because there'll come a point in time, right, where folks can't afford to live in that community. So we got to be careful about how fast we turn on um, some of these improvements. Right. Um, and Camden Town, we should say, is kind of that, that's the, the name for the area of North Minneapolis that you're redeveloping. Yeah, it is. It's historically known as Weber Camden. Weber Camden was once made up of five different neighborhood organizations that broke off into individual. And there is one now, Weber Camden, which is awesome. And Camden Town just became like, for me, this nickname, a a little just way to kind of refresh Mm -hmm. um, and bring a little future vibe into into this space. Yeah, it sounds great. Can we get there? Can can we make Minneapolis a market that 
uh, a young, uh, high potential black executive is like, yeah, I want to I want to take a job at a Fortune 500 and build my life in, in Minneapolis. Yes, we can. Um, it's going to take a radical shift in the way people think about what black people need. And it's much more than a job. Um, if it doesn't happen, this place won't remain my headquarters, that's for sure. Hmm. Um, because I'm a proof positive and an example of what can happen if people get the hell out of the way and allow people uh, who understand community to lead it and then add value and resources to make it real. If that doesn't happen, then Minnesota can't be my home um, into the future. What is it going to take? Do you, do you feel, I mean, you've got the governor calling you, you've got big time CEOs calling you. What is it going to take? It's going to take resources and a focus around this is, this is top of priority community. When we go and look at like our strategic plans around DEI, I want to see community number one. Hmm. Very good. Right? Yeah. And then an example of communities that are right. And then we got to prioritize. There are a whole lot of potential communities, but where are our, the way I think about this is Hitsville, USA, right? Barry Gordy has all these great artists, but he has a go through and says, well, who has a hit? And who should we start with, right? And so on and so forth. Yeah. They all are going to be phenomenal, but it's a matter of timing. And so I think Camden Town is 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 perched to be uh, right up there and needs support and resources and and the right advisory group and folks doubling down because it matters what happens when people go in these meetings and say, well, where are we going to put our attention? Mm-hmm. And if you're hearing eight different things or we people don't align, then nothing happens. So I think it's going to require some focus um, and, and some true thought leadership and, and willingness to just get community right. Yeah. And willingness to go get a really great cup of coffee in Camden Town. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so when can we do that? That's, a, that's still a few months away? A few months away, September, I, I, I'll tell you, I'm going to treat the Get Down like Kanye West treats his albums. It's not going to open until it's absolutely as good as it possibly can be. So uh, it's it's important that this place is just amazing. And I'm, I'm going to go slow and try to make sure it's really, really right. I love it. Um, so, you have taken on a lot of emotional baggage and responsibility well beyond running your own business. How do you how do you balance? How how do you, you know, kind of find peace for yourself and um and, and what do you think about as far as goals for you, Houston, the entrepreneur and business owner? You know, I, I, I like to cook every night if I can. I haven't been able to do it lately. Um, but I go golfing as as many times a week as possible. Uh, it's just, it's my haven. It's the place I love to unwind. Mm-hmm. Um, music is, is the, just the soundtrack of my life every day. I'm in a different mood. Uh, yesterday was Jimi Hendrix. The day before it was Max Roach. It's all, we're all over the place. right? What's but today? Like 
Uh, today actually was Kanye West on the way. So, um, and, and, you know, as far as my goals, I, some, I had a great conversation the other day, uh, with, uh, Stuart Ackerberg and Nate Garvis, uh, two amazing human beings. Um, you know, and Stuart said to me, Houston, you know, if Camden Town happens, um, that 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 is historic kind of stuff. That is legacy, generational, like seismic shift. The other stuff is really important too, but that's more about you and your, you know, and that'll be you. You can do fine as an individual and go make money. Um, and that really helped me center and realize how important Camden Town is. Not necessarily for the success of Houston White, but as it relates to Minnesota Mm -hmm. and this conversation of race and wealth and equity and all these things, if you can really start to move that, um, that would be something that would be at the end of the day, probably the most important thing I've ever accomplished. So he helped me realize, yeah, that to really just sit there for a second and push. Hmm. That'd be quite a legacy. that's, That's a goal. Yeah, that's a goal. Well, you've certainly got your to-do list, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to get to to come to the get down and uh, see uh, see it continue to evolve and develop. I think now the message is we've just got to get everybody there. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, you have been consistent in, in amplifying um, the story um, and voices that are trying to really make a difference. Uh, I, I appreciate it. I mean, oh, someone you. asked what, what my <laughs> young white attorney uh, asked me last week on the golf course, what can I do? And I said, leverage, lever, leverage your privilege. You're a, you're, you have something that everybody needs, right? Figure out how to use it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're talking to folks not in community that have different mindsets, you know, make sure you make it known that you support it. And so I see you as a true ally and I really appreciate it. Thank Thank you so much. That means everything. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Houston. Can't wait to see how, how it all evolves and Minneapolis is truly lucky to have you. Well, Get Down Coffee, the packaged version, will be launching in select Target stores this summer. Look for that, and then you'll have the full Get Down experience in Camden Town coming hopefully early this fall. Well, Houston talks about the importance of entrepreneurship in forwarding the black community in his community and everything he's doing. You heard how Target and U.S. Bank have responded. For more perspective on the role that entrepreneurship can play in building community and people, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where Laura Dunham is the Associate Dean of the Schultz School. Laura, thanks so much for joining us again. Sure. Thanks for having me, Allison. We know Minnesota to be a very um, considerate, philanthropic state. We rank high, and that goes back to the roots of Target and, and to giving back to the community. And he talked about how that's wonderful, but uh, perhaps a, a better way of forwarding a community is through entrepreneurship. 
And you of all people must have some thoughts on that. What, what do you think about, you know, him talking about U.S. Bank investing in him versus a nonprofit? Oh, I so agree with him. You know, I mean, somebody, his story, it, you know, is itself just demonstration of what happens when somebody has um, enough leeway, whether through capital or access to the right mentors or, you know, through their own experience to make things happen in the world. Um, we do know that um, obviously when small businesses start up, they're such a driver of our economy. They create the jobs. They, you know, bring new products and services to market. They play a really important role in our economy, but they also play a really important role in upward mobility, mm-hmm. right? You know, so so actually starting a business is much, is a, so people who are business owners have much higher levels of wealth. And that's true across, you know, um, ethnic groups or, or, or background, um, whether you started uh, with a lot of money at the beginning or, or whether you are first time, uh, small business owner, Mm -hmm. it is a real important path um, to building intergenerational wealth and and upward mobility. And I think it's been really, really interesting to see in this this past year, um, which has been so difficult and painful for so many, um, that actually the PPP appears to be something that has really sparked a a lot of business startup. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been a huge spike in the last year in business startup in Black communities. Um, So so we do know when you give people a little bit of bandwidth and you give them a little bit of capital, um, they have the, you know, they have the insight, the the experience, the knowledge of what, you know, uh, uh, they see needs in the marketplace that need to be filled. they act on that in individual creative ways that ultimately I think is much more impactful than necessarily having, you know, philanthropies have an important role to play without doubt. Sure. But you want to free up from the bottom up all that great ingenuity and creativity um, that, that human beings bring to problem solving. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that happens uniquely and uniquely well through entrepreneurship. Right. And and it's supporting those entrepreneurs at the beginning of their journey. I mean, you know, we, we talk so often on the show and I'm sure in your classrooms about, you know, getting started with friends and family money. Well, then we have to remember not everybody has friends and family money to get them started. That's absolutely true. You have to have some capital to start a business. And, you know, we absolutely know that minority-owned businesses there are far fewer of them um, than it, than the number of minorities that we have, and they're they're far underrepresented in mm-hmm. terms of small business ownership. You know, you look at Black entrepreneurs, and you think about decades of um, discrimination, lack of access to opportunity, redlining, which put people in neighborhoods where their investment couldn't appreciate the way it could for other families. And so you're talking about um, lack of access to capital. That is compounded by the fact that, quite frankly, there's a ton of research that demonstrates banks have discriminated against um, small business owners of color. Um, And there's just lots and lots of of data that shows that even when you match, you know, a black and a white entrepreneur, you know, age, gender, industry sector, uh, credit worthiness, um, the black entrepreneur is going to get turned down at a far higher rate 
um, get a much smaller loan and typically pay a much, if they do get a loan, and typically pay a, a higher interest rate. So there's yeah. a lot of reasons where um, minorities have not had the opportunity to be small business owners right. in the past. So really, really important that we unleash all that talent and all that creativity by actually giving people um, the, the bandwidth they need to be able to, you know, in terms of a little bit of capital, mm-hmm. which I think PPE, PPP has, has turned out to be, you know, the economic stimulus has ended up giving people some freedom to actually hmm. apply their entrepreneurial smarts and drive right. and, and to start businesses. And I think we're going to see some really interesting things in the future because of that. Yeah. Well, so hopefully uh, some, some good that, that comes out of, as you said, a, a most challenging year. And uh, Houston, I think, is is such an inspiration to so many. So hopefully uh, other other businesses and cool entrepreneurial endeavors headed to Camden Town and uh, and the rest of our community and state. Laura Dunham, thank you so much for your perspective. As always, we so appreciate it. And thank you for listening to By All Means. We thank our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. That's where you'll find lots of other episodes and more info about the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.